2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's scary. I think the main thing that the manager, like the difference between being a player and a manager, find out real quick when you come to spring training is just trying to get guys healthy and knowing there's going to be small setbacks on certain guys. And um, yeah, you start looking around. I I, I feel like we're really deep, actually, in a lot of areas, um, which I don't know that I could felt that way in the past uh with some quality we've got quality extra outfielders we have quality extra infielders and um you know we've got uh nico can play short vargy can play short um you know we've got a a handful of guys that i feel like can play over there um for a short period of time should should something happen to hobby but um luckily hobby's fine um and uh back in there today. Uh, getting work and, and going to take BP. And I think everything is all soft tissue, so I think he's fine.
3: Good to hear. Anytime Javier Baez gets hit with a ball, you get worried. So good to hear from David Ross that uh, Javier Baez is okay, and he mentioned the depth that the Cubs have in spring training this year, which uh, should, in theory, help them as the 2021 season gets underway. Hi, everyone. Zach Sabeman with you here until 5 o'clock, but I'm not alone. I'm joined by two special guests for this hour Tom Thayer and Ron Coomer both on remote Thayer's in Hawaii Coombs in Florida but they've got Chicago on the mind. We're broadcasting live from the Hyundai Studios, brought to you by your local Hyundai dealers. You can be a big part of the show as well at 312-644-6767. We'll take your phone calls throughout the hour. The Score listener line is powered by BetQL. Bet smarter and beat the books. Download the BetQL app today or visit BetQL.com. And both Coombe and Tom join us on the Score hotline presented by Alpamonte Ford. Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park on North Avenue or APFord.com. And you heard Rossi say that Baez is okay. So is Io Dosumu. He may be one of the best players in college basketball. He's definitely the best player on Illinois. He's back from a broken nose, and he's back in a big way. Five of five from the field. He's got 11 points. They're at the half in Columbus, Illinois, leading Ohio State 41-37. Just the quick update to keep everybody on board. All right, so I do want to talk a little bit baseball here because Coom brought up a great point in we probably have in the game of baseball the best athletes. From a physical standpoint, these guys are as strong, as big, as fast Coom, as they've ever been. But sometimes it comes at the sacrifice of the ability to think the game of baseball there's a lot of analytics there's a lot of information out there but sometimes it's how you use that information to your advantage and you brought up a point earlier that I I wanted to to go to level two and level three on what are some of the questions that you would have in terms of being able to understand
4: how someone
3: thinks the game of baseball
4: well it's a great question and, and it's it's the it's the question for all the teams trying to get it the advantage over the other groups, right? I, I, and I would say that probably in every sport. Um, so, and that's why everybody is using team psychologists and bringing in all these extra people to try to get to these young people about what they're doing on the field and what they're thinking about and how they're thinking. Um, to me, the, the information that is given these, these athletes nowadays and I'll stick with baseball, the sport that I know. Um, the information that comes in to the player is immense. It really is. They have all these tools um, coming to them, whether it be um, these, you know, fifteen cameras around their swing or around them, them throwing in their, you know, in these um, hidden bullpen areas or. Or these areas in a batting cage where you know they take every little nuance of your swing and break it all down, and and get you to do exactly what maximizes your your abilities as a as a hitter or as a thrower, and and all those are great. And I think that's you know you brought up Nico Horner, and I think he went through some of that with Cubs assistant hitting coach Chris Valera this this winter with staying in Chicago, and you know he might be able to maximize some of his abilities with his body type to to just be more consistent, right? That's what you want. Right. But I think there's the next level of that, Zach and Tommy, uh, in baseball and in hitting, is understanding the game inside the ball game, right? So when you're playing a game, you may have the best swing in the world, and your 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 swing is is very good, but that only works in a cage. That's not in the actual game. So to me, the next level of that is teaching these, these guys and having them understand what the opposing team is trying to do to them to get them out. And I think that's where like a Nico Horner right now in spring is experiencing extreme success, right? He's been red hot here the first week of camp. He's a great young kid, a great young player. Um, and to me, so did he? is he figuring out um, what they're trying to do to him and he's combating that, or is it just early in camp? And I'm hoping that, and I think it's he's just taking the next step in being a, a very good offensive player in the major leagues, and I think he has that kind of ability. But to, to take a look at what is happening and how they're pitching him to me, you can have a swing coach, all great in the mechanics and all these these um, tools to have to analyze your swing to the absolute extreme, and then you have a hitting coach, and the hitting coach is going to teach you how to succeed in game, and that to me is where you know these guys got to take the next step in understanding what the opposing team is trying to do to them to get them out. Because I did not see a lot of advancement for our players last year in that realm. They did. They were they were very pitchful, and it was the same, the same, the same, the same day after day after day, and they kept getting out, you know, in the same patterns. And you know, you and I saw that last year. Is that... So let's
3: get to Horner specifically because one of the things that he said he worked on with Chris Faleka was opening up the stance a little bit more to create space he says in order to be in a better athletic position when the pitch comes into the zone.
4: Okay. Those are, those are, those are swing thoughts, right? So that is putting your body that that's just a mechanical thing that you're doing to maximize what you have physically as a hitter. So he's a little more upright. He's opened up a little bit and a little more space with his hands to track to the baseball is what he's talking about right so the the swing from the start to the contact area is what he's talking about and those are good things because and they're 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 vital because you you how many times you hear me say he got his pitch to hit but he missed it he fouled it off well that's the difference between a good big league hitter and a minor league hitter the really good big league hitters, they don't miss that pitch because of of the mechanics of their swing being off. So you have to have that swing coach and you have to have that swing dialed in mechanically. So then, now that he's feeling good mechanically, now you have to take it to the next level because come April, when everybody is able to use all their repertoire pitches, you've got to be able to combat what they're trying to do to you in the game because once again, you're not hitting in a cage, you're hitting a guy trying to get you out. And that's the big difference to me with, with our game and what we saw last year.
5: Hey Coombe, um so kind of a, a, an analogy question. In the last couple weeks, I watched the resurgence of Jordan Spieth, who was a great golfer mm-hmm. and, and hits the ball as well as anybody. And then to bring that to baseball, cause you play both sports. You get be, you, you tee up a golf ball, then it's it's you, the club, and the golf ball, and your mechanics. When you Tommy, go I watched to,
4: Jordan speak the last three weeks too. I did the same thing. I was watching him today before we went on, so I'm right there so with that,
5: you. So that, so the psychological part of it, like to me, I was thinking, is it a mechanic improvement or is it psychological improvement for Jordan? And now my question for baseball is, when you walk up to the plate. Do you forget about the hitting coach and now you just become Ron Coomer at the plate? Or are you still having all those thoughts going going through your mind at such an instant of time that you have to make a decision?
4: If you're having a lot of swing thoughts during your at-bat, you're going to have a lot of struggles. That's why you, you, you do all this practice to get the mechanics of your swing down so then come game time You can just swing, right? You can see what the situation is and swing. My feeling is for Jordan Spieth is whatever was going on with him was a mental issue, not a physical issue. He had physical issues, but he also had extreme success. And now he got with somebody who might have tweaked his swing a little bit, and then all of a sudden it freed him up going, yeah, that's it. Is that a mental thing? Or was it really such a physical thing that changed his game? I look at that and go, that's mental. That's a mental that's a mental issue to me. When a guy's that talented. That's the way I look at it.
5: Have you ever had a stumbling block like that in your batting career where you're almost talking to yourself and trying to get out of a slump or just a period where, Um, things aren't as natural and as easy as they were at one time in your career because that's what amazes me about Jordan Spieth is because throughout the difficult time you could see him talking to himself after almost every shot and now when you the success he's having it's almost like he's containing the swing thoughts and he's he's playing very efficient and for, for, you know, football is is always going to be physical. So you're really not going to go through that, but to play baseball or to play golf, have you ever had to um, kind of like lasso yourself back into Mm -hmm. your, your own thoughts?
4: I did. Absolutely. And I think every hitter in major league baseball has gone through that. And to me, I would have these little physical, um, this process I would go through before the game um, in my in my early work, whether it be hitting off a tee or flips just in the cage, and then take it into batting practice. But then, if I was really struggling, I would go right back to the simplest thoughts of hitting in my in the swing itself. All I would want to do, I would I I knew I was putting myself in a position to where when I was ready to swing, my body was in the right position. So that was the one thing you can fix very easily. The ball's not even coming yet, but if you're in the right position physically, okay, now I can can make a path to the ball with my hands and do well. But the biggest thing was, the only thing then from there I wanted to do was track the ball with my eyes to the bat. And what that did, that was a Carlton Fisk thing. Pudge taught me that, and what that did is your eyes tracking the ball to the bat to the head of the bat all of a sudden it it got your body back in sync and the rest of your body would follow your eyes so if your eyes were pulling off and let's say looking at the shortstop as your barrel's getting to the hitting zone your whole body is shifting towards the shortstop instead of at the baseball so that was the one simple thing that i would do to get myself back on track and get my body back in position. But the other thing, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to when you have your bet it is it is really important at the highest level to understand what they're trying to do to you or what the opposing pitcher has, you know, and that's why paying close attention in game to what a guy is doing um, in the game is is why the greats are great. The average guys are average, and then the guys that are trying to hang on to the big leagues, why they are. The greats see it, and they can combat it. The average player in the league can see it, but he can't always do something about it. And then the guys that are at the bottom, the, the bottom part of the roster, they might be able to see it, but if the pitcher makes his pitches, you got nothing to combat it. You're just out, and that's the difference to me. See, that's...
3: That to me is what makes Kyle Hendricks special. You know, you mentioned Coom about the conversations you've had with Kyle about his approach to pitching. Is he essentially puts the hitter in a position to get himself out. You know, you were talking about you, Darvish earlier. Right. Darvish's stuff is so good that's going to get the hitter out naturally. But pitchers like Hendricks and Zach Davies and Alec Mills, they are reliant in in outthinking the hitter and putting the hitter in a position to get himself out and I ask that because you know all three guys are likely going to be in the Cubs five man rotation and usually those guys are, are not what you typically see so they're very difficult to solve but in a series this year you may see two of them on the mound in a three game series mm-hmm. does that take away the advantage that Kyle may have or Alec may have, or Zach Davies may have.
4: I, I would say maybe a little bit. The third guy, if, if, if you had all three of those guys pitching in the same series, I'm going to guess you're only going to see two of them, two of the three, the way David's going to break up the rotation. Um, but still see, at the end of the day, if, if they're so different from the rest of the league, and the power of the league and the way things teams are going about it, that I really believe that the soft throwing guy, um, Kenta Maeda, Kyle, Zach Davies, these, these guys that know how to pitch, um, at a, there, there's, there's that. I always joke about this. There's pitching, um, above like your velocity is above the hitting speed, right? And you're throwing 95 to hundred and, If they make their pitch and you don't put a perfect swing on it, you're just out. Well, there's also pitching under the hitting speed. And that's what some of our guys do. And that's just as effective. It just doesn't have the same wow factor. And it doesn't have the same factor on the hitter of going, if he uncorks this pitch and it's at my head, I could die. Right. (laughs) You know, there's that hundred mile an hour fastball where you just can't get out of the way. And if it hits you, it's breaking, whatever it is. There's that factor. And that fear factor for the hitter when a guy throws 100 is real. You know, it's, it's the same thing in football. When I watch receivers go over the middle and they know that linebacker is at full speed and he's running, you got to catch this ball and you've got a real chance of getting crushed going across the middle. Do you have the ability to reach out and catch that ball? Or do the hands come a little closer to the body and you go, eh, not this time. I'm going to protect myself. That's the same thing as a hitter with a guy throwing 100 miles an hour if he zips one in under your jaw.
3: Coombs' former teammate and he always jokes about this Tom, on the broadcast Kirby Puckett, the uh, legendary <laughs> Twins outfielder.
4: Uh, what did he say, Coom? How did he pronounce it? He to be to be a big league hitter, Tommy, you you he used, you know, if you saw a guy bailing out, he'd say boys to hit in the big leagues, you got to have k- Courage to hit in the big leagues, <laughs> <laughs> and you're going against Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson, and now some of these guys throwing 100, like you know, there are a lot of them. You know, like Chappie did, and some of them. Courage is what it takes to play. in Well, this you game.
5: know what? It, it's like in the NFL when you talk about that receiver kind of short, arming across, short-arming it across the middle. They call that a business decision.
4: Yep, <laughs> that's exactly right. Your, your brain might have been in there, but boy, the heart wasn't. I'll tell you that.
5: Right.
4: <laughs> Let's take a
3: timeout when we come back. More of the fun conversation with Ron Coomer, Tom Thayer. I'm Zach and You can join us as well. 312-644-6767. This is Chicago Sports Radio 670. The score.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. Alongside Ron Coomer,
3: Zach Zaidman with you. Tom Thayer is along as well. You can be too at 312-644-6767. We're here until 5 o'clock talking sports. We've sprayed to all fields. By the way, Coom, our first Cubs spring training broadcast comes your way Friday right here on The Score. We're finally going to get to call a game.
4: Less than a week away, buddy. I'm looking forward to it. I've been watching and following our, our ball club a lot um, unfortunately we have been unable to be in arizona um, just because of some of the situations with covid and things but i've uh, been watching talking to david talking to some of the guys in the ball club and i am really looking forward to getting back in the booth at wrigley and hanging out with you and getting a little little normalcy back in in my life of being around a ballpark again i'll tell you that
5: Coom, what's going to be different for David Ross this year? I mean, there's different leadership up at up in the top. There's a lot of players that the Chicago fan base has become familiar with it, that aren't there anymore. David Ross is not just the you know uh, the first year. I mean, it's not he's not long into his career, but he is into the second year of his career. What's going to be different for him than what we as Cubs fans saw last year?
4: Well. I- I think the learning curve, he even talked about it on one of his calls, and I talked to him the other day, Tommy, and he uh, he, he talks a lot about being himself, but um, also just just understanding the little nuances of managing um, a, a Major League Baseball team. I, I just really don't think anybody is totally prepared. If you have not managed at all, I don't think anybody – has the ability to understand the magnitude of what it's like to manage a big league game day in and day out and manage every day and manage the 26 or 28 guys that you have. And then all of the, all of the stuff that he had learned through his long career as a player, you could take a lot of it, crumple it up and throw it away because of the COVID situation. So he was just dealing with a lot of different issues and and the majority of them had nothing to do with what was going on on the field. So, I think for him, um, getting some normal seat back of your roster and your players, and and understanding that baseball's somewhat back to normal, um, I think that's going to be important. Not more, you know. I I think last year they had there was more concern about COVID tests and who was getting them and what we're doing as opposed to just you know managing a big league baseball game. So. I think that's going to be one thing for David. Um, But just understanding um, the nuances of what he does and what, what he probably didn't do or didn't know going into a season as a big league manager.
5: All right, how about this? Is there any reality to looking over your shoulder? And what I mean by that, when you look over to see what's happening on the south side, whether it's good, extremely good, or difficult stages with a new manager there. Is, is there any of that in the Chicagoland baseball market, or is it just you be concerned for yourself and let them be concerned for themselves?
4: You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think it'd be different for each guy. I would say for a guy like David Ross or for a guy like Joe Madden, I, I think both of them are very comfortable in their skin. Um, so I look at that and I would say for both of those guys, whether it be, um, Joe for the years with the White Sox or David now, I think they'll be just fine. I I don't think David's going to have any issue with the White Sox and what they do and whether they get off to a great start or, you know, end up being a playoff team. I I don't necessarily know, you know, David, David's not a Chicago kid. He didn't grow up here. You know, the White Sox are just another team to him. He knows he loves our city, but the Cubs are his team. So I I really think that that, um, you know, he'll be fine in that regard. I thought that was more of an issue for Rick Renteria, to be quite honest with you, through the years. Um, When Rick went over to the White Sox after being with the Cubs, I felt like that would have been an issue. I don't know for a fact because I was not around Rick. But I would, thought, I would have thought that would have been a much bigger issue for Rick, you know, dealing with the success the Cubs are having um, and being on the south side and trying to build what he was doing. Um, but I think now with both groups, you got Tony La Russa. He's not going to give toots what the Cubs are doing and how they're doing. <laughs> he's going to manage the White Sox. And I think David Ross, with all of his successes as a player and now handling his team, I don't think David's going to have any issue Um, just dealing with his own group and trying to to put the best 26 guys on a field and and winning a ballgame each night. Coom, I've I've
3: spent a lot of time thinking, you know, because I I love listening to you talk about hitting and the approach to hitting in these particular games. And you mentioned something earlier that kind of stuck with me about how you have all these relievers now that throw 100 miles per hour. I mean, basically every team is, once you get into the bullpen, Every reliever that comes into the game is a high-velocity, 90-mile-per-hour guy. I mean, high 90s. -hmm. So in the old days, and and, and when I say old days, I'm talking about when when you played for the Yankees, one of the things that made the Yankees so successful, and even going back to 2016, I thought one of the things that made the Cubs very successful is they'd work deep counts and Mm -hmm. force the starter to throw a whole bunch of pitches, and the idea was to get into the bullpen early. But because everyone now has such hard throwers coming out of the pen and a surplus of them like we've never seen before, is it almost to your advantage now if you don't go deep into the count against these starters and try to attack them a lot faster than you normally do?
4: Well, there, there's a, there's a pros and cons to all of that, Zach. And I think each day, brings you a different um, thought process of how you want to combat the opposing team and the opposing pitcher um, and what their bullpen is like. If they're fresh bullpen or have they used the bullpen extensively the last three days? So I, I think there's there's some give and take to that question and some, some ways of looking at it. Um, I look at the Cubs over the last year and I thought... The, their mantra was let's grind our at-bat and let's go deep in the count and then let's not be afraid to pass the baton to the next guy and let him do it if you end up walking, right? Well, to me, sometimes, those are great thoughts. They're great thoughts. They're great theories. All that is, is a yes. But there are also times where somebody's got to be the man, right? On every team, you got to have somebody step up and get the big hit. And I I thought at times last year the Cubs were early in counts were too passive and they'd get a pitch down the middle and they wouldn't put a swing on it because they were trying to, the goal was, was cloudy to me, their goal. The goal is to drive in that run, right? Somebody's got a touch home plate for us to win. And I thought the goal got cloudy and there are times where, the first two pitches of the at-bat, you could hit a ball the other way or drive a ball and drive that run in, and instead of getting to a 3-and-2 count and then the pitcher makes a great pitch and you end up striking out, well, that at-bat wasn't make or break on the last pitch. It was really make or break on the first two pitches when you had two good pitches to hit and you didn't make a pass at them. So to me, those are things that... In my view of of the offense, there are some guys that are very good at it. Like Ben Zobrist was great at extending his at bat and keeping the at bat going until he got a pitch to handle. There are other guys that that's not their skill set. So if that's not your skill set, go up there and hit, right? I think Nico Horner's in Javi are guys that are swinging from the on deck circle. So when you get a pitch to hit and you're and you're in, you get what you want and that's and it's the first or second pitch or third pitch, go ahead and hit it. Don't don't try always to extend your at-bat just because that's kind of the, the theme of what we're all trying to do. No, go ahead and be the guy. Drive the run in. And I, they had those guys in 16, and they did it, and I thought they got away from that over the last couple years. And that's where, you know, in key situations, the hitting with runners and scoring position was down, um, and then also – The strikeout numbers got elevated because you did extend the at-bat. It's a great at-bat, but the result was not what you're looking for. And when you really analyze what happened, you had an opportunity of taking advantage early in the at-bat. You didn't need to take it to the eighth pitch. And those are things that I look at as an RBI guy.
3: It's a great point that you make. And I, I wonder if, because again, last season, we're talking about just 60 games And in a normal year, you'd still have 100 more games to play. So I wonder if that approach would have changed over the course of the season and if you could have fixed some of the issues that we saw from an offensive standpoint last year. That's what I'm most intrigued by heading into the 2021 season because I'm sure that was a big point of emphasis – you still have a, a chunk of the core there that you're relying on to win. It's a pretty good core when you, you say Rizzo, yeah. Baez, Bryant, Contreras. I mean it you're still relying on on that group to perform at the highest level. Let's take a quick break here. I, I want to get your reaction to what I just said, Coom. Tom Thayer's along as well. You can be two at three one two six four four sixty seven sixty seven. I love going inside the game with these guys on the score.
2: It was nice. It was nice. Other than the the one guy in the upper deck that kept heckling our pitchers. <laughs> it's like the only guy you could hear. Um, but no, in all seriousness, it was fun to hear that stuff again. It was great to see, um, you know, fans getting into the game uh, interaction um, between them yelling and cheering. And, and, you know, when Javi got that hit, there was a real um nice applause, like just that stuff when as that as the, the numbers get bigger, that's just gonna get louder and louder. So um it was nice. It was just nice to walk down in and out of the stadium and have people say hello and um just I don't know, like this is what this is what the game's all about. I mean. Totally agree with David Ross have been with you here until five
3: o'clock on the score. Pleased to be joined by Tom Fair and Ron Coomer. You know, I was asked by Lawrence Holmes. On one of his shows last month, he said, what do you miss most about everything that's that's happened uh, since the pandemic started? And I said, Vance. I mean, Coombe, you know better than anybody. Uh, there's playing baseball in other stadiums, and then there's playing baseball at Wrigley, which is an experience unlike any other, because... Of the background noise that you hear from the fans and we got a little bit of it from the fans that were on the rooftops last year but what a noticeable difference at the ballpark I mean Wrigley comes alive it's like the city of Chicago hibernates after bear season right and then all of a sudden the weather starts to get a little bit better opening day rolls around and you make that walk or drive into Wrigleyville and the hibernation ends and the place comes alive, and that's it's not like that everywhere where Major League Baseball is played.
4: No, I I would agree. I you know when you when you think about um, what our season looked like last year and what the NFL looked like, Wrigley is its own. It has its own identity, right? I mean, and, and people know it. I always the two places that I played. Um, that I thought there was an, a home field advantage to the extreme was playing in old Yankee stadium and you would be taking batting practice and they would have this Yankeeology thing going on the board and, you know, they'd be showing Ruth and Mantle and Garrigan, you know, Yogi and all these players doing all these things and winning championships and getting big hits. And you go to Wrigley Field and, you know, and I got to play there either against the Cubs and you're looking around at 40,000 people going crazy. There, there's just something special about those two places. And last year I really felt like, you know, that, that home field advantage and that home field element just kind of went away, right? And it was, it was who are the best Sandlot players because that's what you were kind of playing, you're playing Sandlot baseball again, and the ball would go in the seats, and you'd hear it rattle around, and, yeah, it's not the same. You can pipe in all the noise you want, but it just wasn't the same. And I, I can promise you this. I would have had a really hard time playing Major League Baseball with no fans. Tommy, I I don't know how you feel. You played, you know, football. Everywhere you played, you had big fans. a Catholic packed the house every night when you were a kid. Notre Dame uh, goes without saying I pretty good and and then in Chicago here I mean could you imagine playing at Notre Dame or playing in the NFL with no fans
5: well you you know Akum which the big difference for me was uh, being a, a sports fan and you and I and Zach doing all these shows through the pandemic last year and the uncertainty of sports and then baseball came out of the scene and it was such a relief um, finally a distraction that we could all have fun with and pay attention to but from the very first game you played until the end it I mean it was a sprint it wasn't you know oh, I'll, I might not see any games this week I'll catch you up next week it wasn't that way and that was the thing about football is you knew that you were going to get the games in, but the uncertainty because of the the, the COVID, how would it would affect teams, you were, kind of didn't know what type of roster you were going to have on. So every single game of baseball that I watched last year was exciting because I know there wasn't that many. In football, it kind of because you knew you are going to get the season in, and it was just the uncertainty about the roster because it was definitely different. And so, you know, that's, you know, my question is, is the discipline that the football coaches had to preach to the roster about kind of keeping yourself isolated and staying safe. And then the message that the baseball managers were able to give their team, okay, it's starting in every game matters. It, It seemed like there was a different flow To the sports, but in terms of playing without fans, it it would have been a a big challenge initially, just because as you look for the momentum and the building inside the stadium to to start, you know, adding to the excitement and the adrenaline and everything of it from it. But um, again, to me, baseball was a savior for us, but it was a fun sixty-game sprint, whereas football. It, well, you knew you were going to play, but the uncertainty, but the way it concluded with an exciting Super Bowl, I think both sports lived up to everything that we needed out of them and, and hope for when they began.
4: Yeah, that is true. The one thing we didn't have in baseball last year that we always talk about is baseball's a marathon. Just relax. You know, there's no must-win games in April. You know, you, life will move on in baseball. If you lose three in a row in April, it's okay. You don't like it, but it'll be okay. You can you can get by. Um, last year, you had a bad week and a half, and you could be done. And that was, that was the real, you know, I think that was very difficult for a lot of people to deal with. And you saw a lot of star players um, have their struggles last year because of it. I, re- I really believe that. Well, but, you know what's
3: interesting, Coombe? It, it, to, to piggyback on your point, you really have 80 games this year or 81 games, to make a mark if you're the Cubs. Because this is a unique time for the Cubs, and Jed Hoyer has talked about how he's kind of threading the needle here. They're trying to do two things at the same time, which is kind of reshuffle the deck, but yet still compete at a high level. Well, if you have some of the players that we've become accustomed to watching during this run, Rizzo, Baez, Bryant, Contreras, if if those guys don't perform at a really high level, then the team likely isn't going to be good. Then you get to the trading deadline, and there's a, a realistic chance that they're really going to break this thing up. That's
4: pressure. Yep. Yep. There's no doubt that is. That's very true. There. You know when you when you have three core guys that are all up for free agency at the end of the year. Um, that that is very true. So and I know, you know. All of those guys, they absolutely understand it. So we will see what happens. But but that's the business of our game. That That is just what it is. Every team, every organization, and every sport, they go through that. And you just got to play your game and, and understand that you prepare to play and do the best you can do and let the chips fall where they may. But, you know, I, I do believe in talking to some of our guys here remotely, actually, that there is a there is a, a drive and a hunger and um, we, we will see that because I think they feel like they've come up a little short even though they won a World Series. I Think they felt like they were going to be over these last few years that it was going to be better than what has happened and you know they still have a, an opportunity to to uh, rectify some of that.
3: And they're healthy. I, I think that was uh, Very part much of the so. issue last season, and I, I think that there's a belief that. Uh, given uh, the health playing a big role in this, that they can uh, have the big bounce back from an offensive standpoint, the stuff that was missing last year, the stuff really that's been missing the last few seasons with the Cubs.
5: Well, hey, Coombe, could you challenge health a little bit more last year with a 60-game season, unlike this year when you go back to a regular season, if anything presents itself and say, hey, we have time to get you through this, where last year maybe we said, hey, can you take a bat or can you take the field even though you're not 100%? would, Would your mindset be different if you were a manager in those types of health decisions?
4: Absolutely. Tommy, it was like you started the season in August. You know, the playoff run for all the teams, you start weaning everybody out. The, 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 the teams that you think are going to play in October or not come August, right? That's, you know, that's where you look at it and go, hmm, are, are, are you in? Or are you kind of in or are you are really out? Well, that's when you started the season last year with 60 games. So I, I know a lot of guys felt the pressure of staying in the lineup just because you had to. You know, that's August and September. That's what you play like. You know, there's a boatload of guys that play at that time of the year uh, because those games have just so much weight um, each win come late in the season. You just don't have as much time. So there was definitely – there'll definitely be a different way of looking at the injury and like Javi getting hit in the, in the forearm yesterday. If this is April and you give Javi a day or two off, it's not earth shattering. If you only have sixty games and he misses three or four, you know you've missed a pretty good chunk of the season already. And and it's it's a real thing. So this year will be much different than than it was in the past. The past right. in, our,
3: in our in our closing minutes here, you mentioned something, Coom, earlier that got me thinking, and I was waiting till the end to ask both of you guys this. You Uh-oh. talked about how. You don't know about David Ortiz, how you don't know how someone's going to respond in the biggest of moments until you're actually put in the biggest of moments. Because you mentioned that, you know, over the course, any professional athlete, you've generally dominated from the time that you were a kid until you really get to the professional level where you finally face somebody that might be a little bit better or stronger or faster than you. So I'm going to Mm -hmm. ask you both. When's the first time? in your life, you faced someone that was better than you, that you realized, "Uh uh-oh, you know, I've been great, but this guy is better than me. And and that
4: realization, when did it happen? Tom?
5: Wow, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a... I've got one.
4: If you don't, if you want to think about it, I've got one. Yeah. It's really, (laughs) I've got one. So I went to California to play junior college baseball from Lockport. And I went there, and I, I had two very good years, even though I tore my ACL out right at the end of my freshman season. Um, I came back the next year and, you know, pat myself on the back. I was the junior college player of the year and, you know, hit 20 home runs in 36 games and, you know, of your schedule and really thought, you know, yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty good. You know, I, you know, yeah, you get that, that, that. That's outside of Chicago, chip on your shoulder like, yeah, I went out to California, I'm good. It just is <laughs> what it is. <laughs> and I, I ended up getting drafted, and I sign, and I go to the Northwest League to play in rookie ball. Like all the other collegiate players, we go out to the Northwest League, and we're playing in the league, and we have our first-round pick is on that team, Lee Tinsley, who was a great athlete, high school kid from Kentucky. But I still looked at him, and I went, yeah, you know, I – Yeah, he's a good athlete, but I can play baseball every bit as good as he can. I'm okay. And then we played against Ken Griffey Jr. And he was 18 (laughs) years old, right out of Cincinnati. And he came in to play a four-game series against us in Medford, Oregon. And he hit three home runs in that series and made some catches and threw the ball from the outfield, stole like four bases. And at the end of the series, my manager was Dave... Hudgens, and he ended up going to the big leagues and being a hitting coach, and I just went up to him as we were getting on the bus to leave town to go to the next city, and I said, Skipper, if I got to play against that guy every day, I might as well pack it up and head back to Lockport and try to figure out what else is going to work out for me in my life, because I can't do what he's doing, and he's two years younger than me. He was just so much better than everybody in the league, and, and I'll give you I hit 354 that year in rookie ball and came home looking for answers and how to hit. And I looked at him and went, now that's a big league baseball player. (laughs) And I knew I was a long ways away from that.
5: You know, on on the same line, to me, it was, so you play football your whole life and I played three seasons in the USFL where, yeah, it's called professional football. And then, I went onto the practice field and they have a period called nine on seven. So it's supposed to be nine offensive players against seven defensive players, and you concentrate exclusively on the running game. So in the huddle, turn around, break the huddle, and I look at McMichael Hampton, Otis, Singletary, Wilbur, <laughs> Richard, and Mikey Hartenstein. And so the first couple plays we run. I, I can't hit anybody because they're so fast. They're, they know things so well. And I'm going, if I can't block these guys in practice, what's going to happen when you go and play in the game? So finally – Like you're walking off the practice field the first couple days and you're wondering, you know, do I really belong here? Do I have the talent to play because I can't even block these guys in practice? I try to chase down Singletary and he's already on top of the tackle, you know, and I'll go, what am I going to do? And so thankfully things ended up, you know, slowing a little bit, but it was more of the first time you face an opponent. And now these guys are not half as good as the guys you're facing in practice and you're going, "Wow, that's the relief I need to allow you to believe that you do belong in this sport, even though you're not good enough to block the guys in practice." So, it's a it thank was, God a,
4: moment, isn't it?
5: It was. Oh, it was a man. it was a huge eye opener for me.
3: Great stuff, guys. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. Tom Thayer from Hawaii, Ron Coomer from Florida. I want to thank our executive producer, Adam Studzinski, for helping us blast through the speakers of your radio. Coom, I will see you in person Friday, our first Cubs spring training broadcast here on The Score.
4: Can't wait, Z. Tommy, same thing. Great to talk to you, buddy. Great stuff,
3: guys. I'm Zach Saban saying thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy. This is Chicago Sports Radio 670 The score.
4: Wow, what a mustache.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. See you, guys. Have a good night. Okay,
1: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.